About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani, and I'm here with my co-hosts. Dr. Dori Sekaracha. And I'm Dr. Irene Ying. For years, we've worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. We are happy to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Dave Lysecki. Dr. Lysecki is the founder and medical director of the Quality of Life and Advanced Care Program at McMaster Children's Hospital. Under his leadership, the program has grown over the course of seven years, and the team's ultimate goal is to establish a pediatric hospice in Hamilton. They are successfully moving this vision forward, having facilitated a partnership between Hamilton Health Sciences and the Dr. Bob Kemp Hospice Organization. He is the division head and an associate professor in the Division of Pediatric Palliative Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University. He has dual training in both pediatric oncology and palliative care. So welcome, Dr. Lysecki. Hi, Dave. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for coming. We're going to jump right in. I think this is something you'll be really familiar with. So for us as adult palliative care doctors, people often say to us, how do you do what you do? And so, you know, I would turn that same question around to you and ask you, you know, why did you decide to become a pediatric palliative care physician? I would say that as I gained progressive experience, I saw more and more situations where families were in a dire need for support. And the more and more I felt I gained those skills, the more responsibility I felt to use them and provide that care. And it's really an area of care that's enormously rewarding to engage and provide that care. You need to philosophically accept and internalize the idea that you don't create these scenarios. I didn't bring cancer into this household. Mm. I didn't damage this child's brain. I didn't cause that car accident. But here we are and someone needs to help. And once I gained that skill set and I continuously evolve it as time goes on, but I feel a greater and greater pull to provide that support in my head, stupid or not. I think of it as like Michael Jordan at the end of a basketball game, right? Mm. He wants the ball. He wants the shot. And there are many situations in medicine where I actually don't want the ball. Someone else is better suited to this scenario. And this is a scenario from both part of my internal constitution, mm. but in a great deal, thanks to the teaching and mentorship that I've had from a great number of educators over the years where I find myself in a situation where I want the ball. And when you have developed a skill set to provide that care, you can find great opportunities to make a horrible situation mm. that much less horrible. Never great, frankly, right? You're making a, a horrible situation slightly less horrible, but there are moments of beauty and joy and love, extraordinary moments of love. And to bear witness to that and to be even the smallest fraction of that is just the greatest honor of my lifetime. Mm. Perhaps other than being a father and a husband, uh, <laughs> in case they're listening. Of course, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but very well said, like helping through the ups and downs of that serious illness and, and feeling like you had a, a part to play in that. So thanks for sharing. So Dave, in listening to your response, there are a lot of parallels between that answer and I think a lot of the reasons why we got into adult palliative care. But after all these years of practice, I still find that one of the most challenging parts is when I'm caring for patients and they are struggling with the fact that their disease is progressing and life limiting. 
And sometimes I have patients who are on the younger side. So for me, that means in their 20s and their parents are around and they are really struggling. And I find it so hard to know how to support them. And for you, that must be even harder because the parents not only is it their children, but they're also responsible for a lot of the decision making in a lot of the circumstances too. So there's that additional pressure. You know, what kind of advice do you have for supporting the parents or how to approach that kind of situation? Well, first I would say listening is the most important thing, right? Often families bring their own answers to the table and you're there to help them put feelings into words, put instincts into decisions, and to oftentimes let them know that what they're feeling and those instincts are okay. There is a great number of pressure on parents to not only feel like they're fulfilling their role to their child, but to feel like they're fulfilling the role that society expects for them to fulfill mm-hmm. that they're not going to be judged by family or community members or healthcare teams for decisions they're making. It is a difficult, enormously impossible situation they often find themselves in. And so to sit there and be present and to listen and to validate some of the feelings they have and help them turn those feelings and instincts into action plans with the acceptance that in two nearly identical situations, two different sets of parents or single parents or guardians may come with very different instincts and both of those instincts could be okay, right? Our job Hmm. is to loosely define sort of where the boundaries of perhaps unacceptable decision-making are, but within that spectrum of reasonable decisions and actions to support families in making those decisions and verbalizing them, documenting them through and to the healthcare system. So it, again, relies on an underlying philosophy of accepting that the world is not a fair place, right? That this sucks and I wouldn't have chosen it for them. If there was anything I could do to get them out of that situation, I would. But generally, we start off with the principle that we're in a situation that none of us wants to be in. But given that we're here, what's the best decisions we can make at the time? I really love that answer. And it it made me think you must have certain days that you're really (laughs) having very challenging but rewarding conversations. And then it's time to go home. And you already mentioned the only thing more rewarding than your work is having your wife and your children. How do you do that? Go from that conversation, you know, with a family who's losing their child and then go home and celebrate being a dad, a husband with a healthy family. Yeah, you you certainly don't overnight, mm-hmm. right? It isn't a job that you jump into yeah. or that I have some internal skill that that allows me to do this. It's a skill that's developed over time and practiced, actively, consciously practiced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a funny story that I always reflect on here where it was two o'clock in the morning and I was the senior resident and I had the junior resident. We just had a difficult scenario and I sat down and I asked her how she was feeling and she's, she said, oh, Dave, you're so in touch with your emotions. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> I don't want to have this conversation at 3 a.m. But it's been a practice of actively processing emotions in the moment so that I don't have residual, unaddressed, complicated feelings to then dig through. Mm. That's been my practice and it's worked for me. Most people see me outside of work would very little 
sense of what I do inside the walls of the hospital because I walk around the outside world like I'm the luckiest guy on the planet because I've seen what can happen in a moment. In a moment, your whole life can change and mine hasn't day in and day out. And so every day it doesn't. I just find myself so fortunate and I take every moment with gratitude and joy. That's lovely. It sounds like you work with quite a few learners. Is there advice that you share with them? It sounds like you talk about processing your emotions in the moment. Other advice you shared in terms of navigating this potentially challenging work? No. One thing that I think that we don't do well enough in medicine is look outside of medicine for lessons learned. Mm -hmm. And I find actually in business literature, there's quite a lot to be learned from things like the emotional intelligence world and using those as leadership skills for both yourself and sort of leading self as well as leading others and teams and organizations and as higher up you go in the ladder. So there's a fundamental principle of emotional intelligence. You know, one of the frameworks recognizes self-assessment and self-regulation, understanding where you are and regulating your own actions, separating what are your feelings and what are the outside ways that they manifest, and then learning skills like empathy to recognize the states of others and using then social skills to try to help modulate the actions of others in our interactions. And Mm -hmm. it all comes down to our core motivation. So I do think that people need to really reflect on what is in medicine Mm. as they're going through, try on different costumes. So work with one preceptor and try out their style and see Mm. how that feels and work with another preceptor and try out that style. A question that comes up in my work is about going to funerals Mm. for families and maybe it comes up in your work as well. And I was sitting in a session with two staff physicians that I admired as a fellow, one who said that funerals were a part of her processing and it really allowed her to complete the cycle of the patient relationship. Mm -hmm. And another person that said, absolutely, no, I cannot go to funerals for me to do what I need to do at work. There needs to be a separation. I need to see the child as a patient and not, you know, see their school friends and all that stuff. It makes it too hard. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer there. Both Mm -hmm. have found very different strategies that have been successful for them. And and so I do think people need to try on different costumes as they go through training. I like that. If that's advice about being authentic to themselves and adopting, you know, an approach to practice, to communication skills that authentically fits with them. I like that advice. In general, perhaps for young people, I think there's a pressure on society to become Mm. who you are destined to be. And it isn't until you're older that you realize that you never become, you never reach that state, right? You just continually evolve and roll along like a snowball down a hill and Mm. pick up things as you go along. Mm. And so I I would suggest then there's no race to define who you are and your style early on. Try things out, feel it and see what sticks. That makes sense. And I feel like that question then leads into our next question, which is you're a pediatric palliative care specialist and oncologist and people turn to you as the expert. But I wonder what advice you have for health professionals more broadly. So outside of palliative care about supporting children and families facing a serious and potentially life limiting illness. Like what are the skills that we want to help them develop so they can better support families? Some things I would highlight is one. Mm. We do a lot of suppression of feelings and thoughts in general. And so people are unfamiliar with the scenario when they get overwhelmed with the sadness or grief 
they often will lean back. Mm. They'll lean away. Mm. And most of these families really want you to lean in, mm-hmm. right? Let them know that you are someone that that is open to hearing about the bad days and the crappy things, but also really open to hearing about all of the joyful ways that having a child with special needs or a life-limiting condition has changed their life. You do see different aspects of the world, some of which are extraordinarily hard and some of which are beautiful. So I would say lean in Mm -hmm. rather than leaning out Mm -hmm. and then recognize that the healthcare system and society, social systems are really not designed for these families. Mm -hmm. And it means that everything is an additional challenge and additional is the wrong word. The right word is an exponential challenge, right? Mm. The challenges of physical disability and cognitive disability and being a child on their own, all of these things are not additive, but sort of multiplicative and the barriers get larger and larger. And so much like we need to lean in in a social compassionate way, we also need to lean in our care in a more compassionate way to ensure that it meets them where they're at and provides them with what they need rather than being where we're at and asking them to come to us for what they need. Because after a year or two of that, it's too exhausting. Then you you don't have the energy or ability to even ask for the things you need and you just continue to go without and it cycles. Wow. You've given us so much great food for thought, Dave. We usually like to use our last question. We ask if only they knew. You've had so many wonderful tips for all our listeners, but if you had one thing to say, if only they knew. You know, I would probably rephrase the question from if only they knew to if only they actively processed. Mm -hmm. Most people know that losing a child is Mm -hmm. the worst thing that can happen to you. Most of us go through our lives without wanting to think about that or consider that. And because it's a smaller population, it's relatively easy to ignore. So if only we actively processed that, if you gave me a list of awful things that could happen to me, losing a child would be Mm -hmm. the last one I would choose. Mm -hmm. And so why our healthcare system and societal social systems are designed to have so many barriers for these families is just heartbreaking. So if only we actively processed and acknowledged how difficult this journey is, I think we would look at the way we design healthcare systems and social systems in a more compassionate way. The separation between pediatric worlds and adult worlds and care means that when your child is receiving pediatric care and the family is, of course, going through the worst grief experience that you can imagine, oh, no, those two care circles are separate, right? The parents, you can go to your family doctor in their office two hours away while we care for your child here at the hospital, and we need a better integrated system. It needs to be family-centered. It needs to provide holistic support. And the last thing I want means the impression of pushing that family doctor out, but rather bringing them in. We have so many tools for virtual care and shared collaborative care that there's just no excuse anymore Mm -hmm. for us not working as one single care network that is supporting all of the family's needs in collaboration. Mm -hmm. But between the stresses on family medicine and communities, between stresses in hospitals, it is just hard to bring networks together. And I Mm -hmm. think that's where we all need to evolve. 
Love that idea of family-centered care and caring for both the patients, the pediatric patients and their loved ones, their caregivers, you know, whomever they may be. And I think that in your work in developing a pediatric hospice in Hamilton, I think you're well on your way to achieving that goal. So thank you so much, Dave, for being here today. It was great talking to you. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Gold Define Award through the Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. So Dory and Irene, we had a great conversation with Dave, and I think so much of what he talked about in the world of pediatric palliative care, you know, resonated with us and our own work. And I think, you know, right off the bat, you know, I asked him why he chose to do this work. And I think for me, it's really interesting how in my training in adult palliative care, I spend some time in pediatric palliative care and I do this work wholeheartedly with love and with passion, but I couldn't imagine doing the work that he does in pediatric palliative care because I just found it so emotionally laden when I was in my training program. And so I had, you know, real challenges for myself taking on that role of pediatric palliative care. So I admire him and his work. And, you know, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how you perceived what he talked about in terms of processing emotions and how do you do that in your work and practice? Dory, what do you think? I really love the way he talked about how he processes the emotions in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me because that's something I think I've tried to do. I used to have the advantage that I could walk to work and walk home. And that was my way of prepping for the day and processing what happened in the day. So I would try to process emotions right there. And I would always encourage our learners, you know, to talk about if we had just witnessed a really challenging emotional moment. And then I had the added luxury of doing that walking home. And I think that helped me to do what also resonated with me was when I got home to practice gratitude for what I had and knowing that that could change in a moment. When he said that, that's something I thought about a lot on my way home was how lucky I was and that I should never take that for granted. And so it's that way of separating work and home life. You had like a physical and mental separation from work and home. I felt very lucky to have that. Yeah. I think just to add on to that, I really liked his example of I guess it's two preceptors and how they both had a different approach to attending funerals. Yeah. You know, we've talked in the past about finding your authentic voice when speaking to patients, but also finding your authentic way of coping and processing and how everyone's going to be different. And some people want to talk maybe in a small group or to trusted people. And some people, it might be a more internal process. And I really loved how he said, it's not a race to define who you are that you can try on different costumes and that you yourself as a person may change over time and how you process at one point in your life may be different as circumstances change or as you change as a person. I thought that was really helpful. I mean, I was thinking about that when he was talking about funerals and the approach to that. And, you know, for me, when I've been invited to a funeral and I've been able to go, I think that for me has been a really rewarding experience to connect with 
a patient's families and to get to see another side of them, even if I got to know them, you know, through clinic or through their admission in hospital, even if I got to know them, I didn't really know them. I I knew a slice of who they were. And Mm -hmm. I think going to funerals and memorials really gives you a broader understanding of who they were as a person and seeing pictures of them before their illness. And so I thought that was really interesting. And I know when I've had the privilege of being invited to a funeral, I've opted to go as well. And I appreciated that he brought up that example. I think for me, when I'm feeling something, like Dave talked a little bit about this, about that idea of self-regulation. So if I'm feeling upset, I kind of make note of like, what am I feeling in my body? Is like, is my stomach churning? Is my heart racing? What am I feeling in my body? And then I'm trying to understand like, where is that coming from? What is making me upset about this situation or what's making this situation challenging or difficult to process? Am I sad? Am I angry? Am I frustrated with myself because I can't help in the capacity that I want to? So I'm kind of trying to figure out like how I'm feeling in my body and what's the emotion that's happening and why is that happening? Is that linked to an experience that I've had in my life, in my family? Is it linked to a feeling of inadequacy because I am not able to help in the way that I want to? So I think for me, it's like trying to figure out what's going on in my mind and in my body and what's the why of it? Like, why is it happening? That's been helpful for me as well. Jovan, I really liked that point you made about when you go to a funeral, mm. you only see a sliver, a sliver of our patients. Mm. In the moments we see them in the outpatient or the inpatient setting, maybe for those who do home visits, they'll see a little bit of a broader glimpse. But there's so much that's under. We just see the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And that reminded me of, you know, when I was asking Dave for advice on how to approach parents who are having a lot of trouble with processing the fact that their child has a very serious illness. And he talked about, you know, the added weight of the expectations that parents might have when caring for their children. And then he said something that I didn't really think about ever, which was society's expectations and how that will weigh on the actions and the decisions the parents make. And that kind of like kicked me in the gut a little bit because I already thought that there was going to be so much intrinsic pressure from just the parental role. And it just occurred to me that there are all these other pressures I didn't even think about. Like I was just seeing the tip of, you know, what pressure that parent might be facing. And I have a whole new, I don't know if respect, respect is the right word, but just like appreciation for the challenges that a child and their parent have to go through or their caregivers have to go through when they're faced with a serious illness. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point, Irene. And it's it's a complex situation. And I think that, you know, he talked about the things that were surprising. And for me, you know, the other aspect of that, and it's an extension of what you're talking about, is the pressures on the caregivers, the parents, you know, whomever the guardian is. And I was just surprised by, you know, the lack of support that he talked about, the lack of support for the adult caregivers. And I'm embarrassed to say like that was a blind spot for me. You know, I I didn't think about in a pediatric setting, where is the support for the caregivers in that setting? There may not be any support for them if they're struggling emotionally. And so I think, you know, that speaks to his advocacy for integration and family centered type of care and support that's missing right now. And so that also for me, I think was surprising and took me aback and yeah, just embarrassed to say that it's not something I ever considered, but it's something I think we should be really aiming for and striving for and something that is maybe not there right now. Any other thoughts, story, Irene, about the conversation with Dave? I just really enjoyed listening to him. I loved hearing the passion and I think that he provided our listeners and the three of us with a lot of amazing tips on how we can 
do such emotional and challenging work and stay so grounded and appreciative of the lives that we have. It was great to have Dave's insight. I think I'm really feeling thankful for his presence and for his work. I look forward to seeing the pediatric hospice come to life. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. We'll be back next week with another story. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. Each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner, Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Gold of Fine Award through the Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.